G'day, I'm Reggae Ellis and this is the Chill Factor podcast. Chill Factor has always been about good yarns. Stories about the mountains, stories about mountain people. And now, you don't have to wait to be in the mountains. Join me for what I hope will be some entertaining and inspiring conversations with skiers who embrace the spirit of free skiing. In this episode, I chat with Australian ski legend, three-time Olympian and World Cup champ, Steve Lee. Now, as you may be aware, Steve suffered a major stroke at home in Falls Creek on September 6th and while his future needs remain unclear, we do know it's going to be a long, hard road back and he will require care 24-7. Now, Steve has a loving team around him and plenty of supporters and his family and friends have launched a fundraising initiative, hashtag Steve Lee Fight Back, and you can find the link for donations at the Steve Lee Support Tribe page on Facebook. Now, this interview was recorded in Threadbo late in the 2019 season. Uh, Steve was in town to ski with the kids from the St. Moritz Ski Club. That's a non-for-profit organisation that's been introducing local snowy mountains kids to snow sports for over 40 years. Uh, Steve went for a few laps with the kids up at Threadbow, was also guest speaker at the annual presentation night in Cooma. Uh, it's typical of Steve to make a five-hour drive up from Falls Creek just to stoke out the kids. He's always been prepared to give something back to the sport which has given him so much. In the interview, we talked about growing up in Falls Creek, heading overseas in his mid-teens to follow his ski racing dream, and then his long career as a World Cup downhiller, including three Olympics and all the highlights that went with that career. He also shares his thoughts on Australian ski racing and what we need to do to progress into the future. Since retiring, Steve, of course, has opened his lodge in Hakaba, Japan, uh, where he has his backcountry ski guiding company, Hakaba Powder Tours, and he also started the backcountry tours in Falls Creek 10 years ago. Uh, he's also co-founder of ChillFactor.com, Australia's first snow website, and was part of the team that launched Mountain Watch back in 2009. Now, over all those years, Steve's love of skiing has never waned, and he's out there most days. He's one of those guys who believes there's no such thing as a bad day on the hill. Steve is making slow progress with his rehab, and he'll fight as hard as he can to get through this, and hopefully the grit and determination that took him to the top of his sport, and his sheer love for his family, friends, and life will push him through to the other side of this daunting challenge. Uh, Steve has quite a story to tell. It's the story of uh, one of Australia's greatest ever skiers. Let's get into it. All right, Steve Lee, welcome to the Chill Factor podcast. Thanks, Reg. Good to be here. Well, we may as well start with your association with Chill Factor yeah. and how the whole thing started because obviously you launched the Chill Factor website what, in the 90s and we sort of got together and started the magazine off the back of that. Yeah, that's right. Um, we made... Um Longy, who was sales director at Triple M in Melbourne, um, got introduced to him through Richie Biggins actually, and uh, he had a bit of a sabbatical from the corporate life and came and did a season working for me at Falls as a photographer. Oh, Long Alan Longy. Yeah, Longy. <laughs> and uh, through conversations and so on, the, the web was literally just emerging, you know, the whole thing of the web. And uh, the radio guys were under it pretty early because they could see the potential in it in the early 90s. So. Um, we came up with the hairbrain idea to start a snow sports website, mm. which was um, which was uh, which was Chill Factor, yeah, ChillFactor.com, um, and we had all these amazing ideas and plans of having webcams and live vision, and took it to some tech people, and they've looked at it like looked at us like we had two heads because yeah. they're like, well, that, that might happen in about twenty years, but <laughs> yeah, we, we've now. only got dial-up speeds. Dial-up speeds, it was so it was insane. So anyway, I started a web company with Longy and I didn't even own a computer. <laughs> I had a type. And, um, but we got it done, yeah, we got a, and it was quite successful. So through his sales connections, we got some uh, good marketing going with it and 
and we actually succeeded in getting webcams through all the resorts. It was yeah. the first webcam network in the world. Um, cost us an absolute bomb to run because yeah. the cameras would have to dial in long distance oh, to like Wang or Canberra or wherever. Um, so it, was, it cost like 50 grand a year or something to run. It was ridiculous. But it was all covered by Swanship and, and pretty cutting edge at the time. And yeah, so we had uh, like 17 cameras around all these Aussie resorts, which was pretty unique. And it was actually the first, I believe, the first snow sports website in the world. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, we met, we, we, you know, you and I have been mates for a while. And <coughs> when um, you guys have bought Surfing World, hadn't you? Yeah, we'd been doing Surfing World, uh, yeah. Doug. So uh, we decided to combine forces and, and get the print side of things going, which is yeah. great. So the resurrection of skiing was the... First, That's right, the first one, first Skiing's car, Resurrection. Skiing's Resurrection, which was, which was a ripper. So it was a good journey, yeah. <coughs> and, uh, fun to be involved in, in all that. And then, um, yeah, I think we all sold out to Coastal Watcher. Yeah. And Mount, and Mount Watch became a thing. And yeah. It's well, sort of gone full circle. It has gone full circle. Yeah. Here we are again. Yeah, back, back home in Chill Factor. <laughs> well, with this, I mean, it's a, yours is a long story in Australian skiing. You know, you've been... Um, yeah, one of the legends of the sport for a long, long time. Um, yeah, well, I know it started, you, you grew up in Sydney, but Falls Creek every mm. winter since you were, what, born? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, so mum takes the, uh, takes the uh, mantle of being the starter of the snow side of things in our family. She, as a young girl, was always fascinated by snow and never got the chance to go. Yeah. Couldn't convince her folks to do a snow holiday because her dad didn't like the cold so they always went north. Where were we? But she grew up in Bronte in Sydney and um, but when she finished teachers college and was working the first year her and her girlfriend decided they were going to go to the snow so they uh, did a bit of research and and um, I think the cheapest place for them to go was Falls back in the back in the day there's 954. Yeah right. So she jumped on a train from Sydney went down to Albury got on some old World War Two four-wheel drive bus thing <laughs> that drove him up through the Kiwa Valley, up, up the dirt road, up to Falls, and to the snow line. Yeah. And then they got off and walked the rest of the way in. No way. Seven k's. Oh. So it was down at Turnback Creek, um, below the below Hammonds Gap, where the gate entry is. Um, yeah, all the gear on their back, and off they go. Yeah. Um, but that was just the way it was in, in that day, and she stayed for two weeks and had an absolute ball. Right. And has uh, the only season she missed was when my older sister Kerry was born, because, yep. um, yeah, and that was 60s, and and uh, I think it was Dad said, oh, you can't take a baby to the, you know, to yeah, the snow, right. like the altitude. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. To which Mum's thinking, well, half the world live in the altitude. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was going to say, it's not something unusual. No. So anyway, <laughs> they um, quickly realised it wasn't such a big thing, so then when I came along, we were in the, I was up in the snow six weeks later. and Yeah. Um, but they... Yeah, managed lodges at Falls and through the 60s and club lodges and then sort of went into the commercial side then with three kids in, by the mid-60s were, you know, had to make a decision whether they were going to leave the snow behind or make it a life and they decided to make it a life and applied for a block at Falls which um, normally took a couple of years to come through and was granted three weeks later so they kind of shit themselves with that. And yeah, right. Because <laughs> you had to have something going on it within a year. Oh wow! So they had to get the finance yeah, together. Yeah, so that did the finance together, but they scratched and saved and got some assistance from from uh, from family and and a silent partner in and and got a tunga built. Oh right! And um, that was sort of the start of the whole thing for our family. So we had that for thirty years. Yeah, uh, commercial lodge that went from being a pretty small, you know, nine bedroom lodge up to a to a twelve bedroom lodge with a big restaurant, five or six apartments, swimming pool, you know, the whole deal. So yeah. Um, 
and that was pretty successful. That entrenched us in the snow and, and sort of set, I guess, set my path. Yeah. And so with that, you know, born and bred in the snow, going to school at Falls Creek, yeah. the inevitable, you're going, to, you're going to be skiing. And then Falls Creek Race Club was the start of it. And yeah, and there wasn't really, oh, listen, like today the kids' programs in ski school and race clubs are amazing. But in our day, there was like we were just lumped in with adults all the time, yeah. you know, in ski school. And mum being a teacher, she was adamant that the start of every season, we'd have to do a, you know, a certain block of instructional skiing before we'd be cut loose. To get right, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, which was great because the you know the technique side is all important and um, um, an interesting you know we're, both my sisters and myself are all very good technical skiers and I was probably the only real competitively driven one in the family but I was identified pretty young by the you know the local Austrians at the time yeah. just the way I stood on my skis as even, even as a three you know three year old yeah um, that that I you know had some talent so I sort of was. Those guys sort of took a shining to me and always looked after my progression of technique. Yeah. And you know, and there wasn't too many options in those days. There wasn't any options apart from racing. You know? Yeah, Mogul, right. Mogul skiing wasn't a competitive thing. The only really thing was ski racing. But the, um, So the Four Street Race Club was probably born in the late 60s, early 70s and you know, with, a, with a few families. And um, then we got a bit more into structured uh, training and you know and went down the race path yeah. full on so yeah. Um, yeah, yeah it was and it was you know I, was, I think I was fortunate that I was well, definitely fortunate I lived in the snow and and you know I was I was going to be a sports sportsman in one way one way or the other yeah. you know, good in rugby good at swimming good at tennis good at most things I put my hand to but skiing was the one that um yeah that really attracted me yeah with that okay and the progression was pretty quickly you know like you know racing you know up to Threadbow, mm. to Perisher, so, you know, into into resort racing and things. And then once you get on the Australian junior team and yeah, that, well, that's wasn't a progression. Yeah, well, there wasn't the amount of racing again back then than there, there is now. I mean, these days, the, we were just talking about this morning when the kids were going out, how packed their calendar is. It's ridiculous with, you know, the yeah. events that they have to do within the schools and all the rest of it. And um, yeah, It gets a bit much. Oh, it's it's way too much. You know, you just you don't get enough time just to go out and relax and ski and yeah, yeah, like we, our kids aren't doing inner schools yeah. anymore. People yeah. are going, I can't believe they're not doing inner schools. Well, that's a good decision. Yeah. yeah. I think the inner school is out of control, just quietly. Um, <laughs> so do I. I don't, the whole I don't level think of madness around it. Yeah, I mean, it's a, we'll, we'll get back to that, but um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a topic that we can, which should be discussed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the races, I mean, I, I, hadn't, I didn't ski in another resort anywhere in the world. I, I'd only skied in Falls, so I was 14 years old. Oh, so really? I okay. travelled anywhere. Oh, okay. And then I went, I think, to Buller for like the Vic Juniors or something, um, which was you know, my first experience away from Falls. And then I got selected sort of to do this overseas thing um, when I was 14 as well and went off to Aspen for a first junior camp. Um, okay, and that was with Ski and Snowboard Australia. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> and then... Uh, well, it would have been Ski Australia back skiing then. Skiing Australia. <laughs> no snowboard. Yeah, no snowboarding hadn't been invented yet. Um, yeah, went to Aspen for about eight weeks and um, sort of got to see what the overseas thing was all about. It was the worst season in history there, so we oh. ended up boot packing up a little patch of man-made snow for about six weeks. In, no way. In Aspen Highlands. No way. And the rest of the mountains were grass. It was insane. It was the 76-77 season. And it's, you know, you ask anyone that's over there, oh, the drought of 76. Right, they still, yeah, they still talk pre, about it. You know, pre-man-made <coughs> snow, so... Yeah, so it was just one patch of man-made snow at Aspen Highlands. Man-made? How did they make it? Well, it was early days of man-made snow. Yeah, it would so have been just, so just it would have been like... 
Yeah, I think they just worked out that um, if you sprayed water into the air, because it was cold. actually invented by a snowmaking systems were invented by a, a big uh, orange orchard farmer that thought if he sprayed moisture into the air, he could combat the freezing, right? Like the frost. Yeah. Um, so this big frost was coming through, and he set up pumps and everything, and and sprayed all this moisture in there, and woke up, and all the plants were still frozen, but had a foot of snow on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> He's going, going well. Well, that mm. didn't quite pay yeah. out. Well, it out did because like you created the first snowmaking company. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. So, oh, that, so uh, went on to that. Went down that path. Yeah, that's, that's how it hilarious. Um, but uh, yeah, so we boot packed this little patch of snow for weeks on end. It was horrible. And um, you know, I had all these visions of skiing overseas, how it was. You know, yeah. You sort of even back then you drummed in that Australia's hopeless, the skiing's terrible, you know. And then you get over to best ski resorts in the world and you boot pack this 300 metre. <laughs> Bit stretch of snow, and then the last week it got a bit of snow, and we got to ski Aspen Mountain. That and yeah, sort of had a taste of it. Then the next year I went to Europe with the C team, um, and that was an eye opener. You know, yeah. just being thrust into and Europe with shit out snow as well. You know, right? Skied on rocks and grass a lot over there too. Yeah. So, but you ended up um, spending a lot of time in Europe. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Um, the next year they wanted me to go back to the states, and I didn't want to. I wanted to stay in Europe. So, I a few of us um, sort of had a little breakaway team and did our own thing and. Chase the, the fifth circuit around Europe. Okay, um, how old were you then? Like 15, 16 or 16. Something? Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, and we travelled a little bit as a group and then uh, one other guy from Falls, I think he was 18, I was 16, we did about four weeks by train yeah. around Europe just doing fist races. Okay. Just travelling by train. And Would uh, they have been like uh, a below World Cup Yeah, level? yeah, so there's fist. There's fist just the night the fist races. So there's then. fist level, then Europa Cup, then yeah. World Cup. Right, um, okay. And then there's a level below fist, which is like citizen races, and which yeah. are still fist races, but they're lower level again. So the fist circuit is where you, you, know, where you cut your teeth. Yeah, yes. yeah. And it's so hotly contested still today. You know, the numbers of, you know, there'd be 30 or 40 fist races on any given day around the oh, oh wow. northern hemisphere in the yeah. winters, you know, in the States and Canada and Europe and Eastern Europe and... China and Japan and so you look at the fist calendar it's, it's packed so you there's a lot of different options that you can go to and you and you try and pick your fist races wisely that there's a few good competitors there but not too many so the you know the level's not super high um, so you get some then you points. can get a decent start number you know that you're not way down the back and conditions and all the rest of it so and there's always a couple of really good fist races especially in the spring yeah and it's still that way today that a few national team crew will turn up and you know, they basically make it a good points race by not going too hard. Mm-hmm. And then the younger guys can battle it out and try and make good results and, and get a good jump up the list. Yeah. You know, the so how, how many years did you do that to get onto the World Cup? Um, well, I did probably four years of fish racing. Yeah. Um, then sprinkled a few Europa Cups in there. Um, and I was still racing. I was only racing Slalom GS at that stage. I hadn't, hadn't gone into downhill. My mum wouldn't wouldn't let me do the speed ones do the speed ones till I was sort of fully developed yeah, which was right. a good decision mm-hmm. um, the team wanted me to uh, and that was sort of the way it was back in those days that they'd throw these young kids into ridiculous speed events and pretty yeah. much maim them <laughs> yeah <laughs> so mum being a phys ed teacher she was like nah you, you know just focus on the technical side and, and um, grow your skills and then in 1819 I got a taste of downhill and um and that sort of that was that <laughs> well pretty much yeah it was you know I, I was really strong technical background i was physically strong enough at the time and and uh and had good results straight away so yeah we sort of made a right turn and went down the the speed path um and by the next year i was pretty much on world cup yeah 
And just doing downhill and Super G? Um, well, Super G wasn't even invented Oh, then. okay. Oh, was it? Okay. <laughs> that came in 85. <coughs> so the first few years of World Cup, I did, I did predominantly downhill. We had a few combined, so I'd do a few slums and a few GSs. Yeah. Um, my slum skills were still pretty good. GS was my weakest event. Okay. Know? And it was real. In that era, it was, you were either a tech, you know, slum GS gear or just a GS gear. There was quite a few of those guys around. Right. Um, and then, or at speed scare, you know, yeah, and downhill, and then a handful do the combines and whatnot, which yeah. is a combination of slalom and downhill. Yeah, and then through eighty four, eighty five season, Super G was invented, and that sort of bridged the gap between the speed events and the tech events. Yeah, right. Um, and that suited me really well because I was a good technical skier, and and I did, you know, I had good results in in Super G. Yeah. So, so with that, you know, like um, <coughs> now you're in your twenties. What sort of support did uh, like? What was Ski Australia like? I like mean, then. It's it always been no funding, right? Yeah, there was no funding. <laughs> That's standard. Still no funding. That's standard. And, yeah. you know, it's, there's no funding for the USD team. Little funding for the, you know, the Austrians. And it's not that different to, to most countries, really. Yeah. Um, you know, you just got to find your way through. So we, I had a bit of support privately. Um, you know, the family did whatever they could. I had a couple of decent... Um, private grants from uh, Statewide Building Society was a sponsor for a few years and they had a sporting program going that I was oh, okay. getting some money from. So there's still got those programs around, around today, yeah. like corporates will have yeah. these sporting programs. Totally, yeah. So you'd apply for those and you got, you, you got a couple of those scholarships. Yeah. so I had a bit of, bit of money coming through and then um, when I hit, by the time, so getting through the fifth years is, is the tough years, you know, you, yeah. you, as, a, as a child you're racing in your local stuff and you have a reasonable amount of success, you know, you, and you hit fist and you might not you might not get in the top thirty for four years, you know. Yeah, you just be it'd be hard to maintain your um Yeah, enthusiasm. Enthusiasm, yeah. yeah well the first fist <coughs> race I did in Europe, I still remember it vividly. We'd been training on a glacier and then we went down to sort of the flatlands of Austria, down to the Dachstein factory to this fist slalom event and um, that was my first European fist yeah. race. I was a little bit excited, but I knew I was gonna be starting you know, 139 or 140 <laughs> <laughs> and a bit nervous and we get down and pull up at night and there's like no snow anywhere and you can smell the cow shit and you know, you're in the middle of Austrian paddocks and yeah. I thought oh we must be up on the mountain or something you know where the race is I didn't have much idea where we were going next morning wake up and there was no snow anywhere to be seen and we look across at this hill and it's just this shiny sheet of ice so pre-snow making again they had just prepared this hill they just turned the taps on at the top and let the ice let the water, let the water flow down and just and it was clear ice through the grass no way on this little little hill and um the top section you know all broke up and then it was through to the rocks and grass and then you hit the steeps and your edges are all shot and <laughs> so i'm looking at this thing going this is not skiing like what the hell how did you, you know i just couldn't get my head around how you could possibly even ski down this hill because yeah. it was just sheet ice yeah i'd never skied on anything like anything like it and then this you know, by sort of eighties and nineties, they were just every dude was just crashing out because yeah, they hit just a few rocks at the start and their edges were gone. Then they'd hit the steep pitch and just slide in their ass to the bottom, you know. Yeah. And then this one kid comes down and just rips the bag out of it. Right. An Austrian kid, Christian Olansky, who ended up being a you know shining star, won a bunch of World Cups, but he was he was like sixteen or something at the time, and he just skied this course, and I was going, wow, I guess anything's possible, you know. Yeah, it yeah. Sort of changed my attitude. 
I skated like a piece of shit. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you knew it could be done. Yeah, so it's like, well, anything's possible, you know, and that's the way you sort of look and learn. So, um, but yeah, the introduction to fist was pretty brutal. Yeah. Um, and then you get to Europa Cup, which is a good level up, and I, you know, I had good success in Europa Cup in the tech and then the speed events. Um, but the big difference for me was we had a, we had a young coach, Jan Tischauser, who was you know, a rising sort of star in the coaching world. He'd been with New Zealand a couple of years and came to Australia, did about seven years with us okay. um, as our national coach. And, he, and he, was, he was a gem, you know. He was an amazing coordinator. And, you know, with that, a lot of funds, obviously. And mm. he sort of instigated full-on training camps for, <coughs> for, for us. So we did these brutal, brutal physical training camps that would almost you know, like he was trying to break us you know yeah right who um, were your peers then like who who, um, you, who, you, who was in the team in that era Kim Clifford was still uh, in the national team that ran Kazakhstan Threadbow for a long time yeah. uh, Robbie McIntyre um, Dave Griff was sort of around just at the start of my skiing you know fisting that career yeah. sort of through the late 70s um, so they were the guns in Australia yeah. that I was chasing um, but I, I sort of pretty quickly went past those guys you know, by the by, the early eighties, I was number one in yeah. slalom GS, and then um, when I started doing downhill, um, Anthony Gus was the was the number one downhiller, and I sort of blew him out of the water in the eighty one World Champs, eighty two World Champs, and then he retired that year, and then I was the main dude from then on. So right, and so I went from targeting other dudes to being targeted. Yeah, back. I was going to say you had to target on your <laughs> yeah, back exactly, then. Yeah, yeah. but um, and when uh, and so when was it? full-time World Cup 82 81 82 um, was the first season so I got to train with the Swiss team that year yep I trained with the Swiss C team the year before which was the regional guys in slalom GS um, and had a few months and you just we were just sent off on our own you know we just joined joined, yep. joined this satellite team and, and uh, I think a few of the boys were together with the German speaking guys and I was with the French speaking C team which was you know, the up and coming yeah. uh, tech. That was their best tech squad. Right. Uh, Slam GS guys. Um, so I had a season, so pre season and season chasing those guys around. Then um, late that season is when I started downhill. And the next year, Jan, I don't know how he did it, but he got me in with the Swiss A team. Oh, wow. To do the pre season. And then, uh, so I turned up in Europe sort of mid or early October and um, went through the hardest. You know, without doubt the hardest period of my racing life being by myself yeah. so I didn't have a coach I didn't have I had a te- uh, the, I was with a LAN I think then so um, I had tech support from a LAN because the two the LAN sort of program was coming up through the Swiss team yeah so Kurt who was the tech guy was was uh, became a great mate um, but the the classic scenario was that the Swiss team guys for the first year for two months, didn't say a word to me. Really, they just brushed it. And I, well, kind of brushed me and in my naivety. I just thought, well, I didn't speak, you know, their language, and maybe they don't speak English, and yep. so I just did my thing, and they did theirs. So I did the on the hill training and and then all the physical training. So I was pretty involved with them, but yeah, didn't get to talk. <laughs> yeah, they talk to them. That's bizarre. <laughs> um, and then through that season, um, you know, I had sort of my first big breakthroughs in World Cup and I got sixth in Wengen in particular which was um, an equal tied with Pim and Zubrigan who was the number one Swiss guy on that race on their home turf Zubrigan yeah and uh, all of them came up and shook my hand and patted me on the back and 
and then by the next season we we're all you know, we we're all mates and so I did the second <coughs> season with him again and that was going really well too well probably because I was winning lots of training runs and and uh, the boys were always saying Steve you know like take it easy a bit you oh know, right the, yeah. the coach is getting pretty antsy you know? <laughs> yeah right anyway I got the boot um, the day I won all the training runs oh really <laughs> with them, yeah. pre season so and uh, then I was sort of didn't know what we were going to do then, so it was about three weeks, four weeks out from the start of the World Cup season, and and um, I was obviously skiing really well. And uh, so I've rung Yarn and said, oh, Yarn, um, head coach has just told me that I'm not training with them anymore. It was only a three-week program this year, and he's he's gone. You know, Yarn's like lost it. He's what? What did you do? You know, I've gone. And he thought I'd screwed up some yeah know, some way. I said, well. I know I won four of the training runs today, and I didn't see the fifth time, but I'm pretty sure I won that one. <laughs> <laughs> He's gone, oh. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, so he rang and said, yep, yep, it's over. Um, so we had the weekend to sort of try and work out a new plan, and um, that night... It's pretty uh, weird that, you know, like at that level, they... Yeah, because you're beating them, when you think, well, okay, wouldn't that, yeah, be, well, wouldn't that be something to keep, so they've got to keep well, trying harder? So, but know? they were the number one team in the world with nine of the top... 15 skiers yeah and some, in the, some kid from Falls Creek and then this Aussie kid's in there yeah. training with them and, and beating them so you can understand the pressure so they're going hang on yeah the coach the is coach going my under. coach is I'm yeah. putting this work in his kid and he's starting beating our national team yeah, who pay for everything yeah so yeah. um, so that came to a grinding halt and I was sitting there having dinner and the German team were training next parallel to the Swiss team on the same glacier and um, the head German coach came down and they had a only had one guy in the top 15 I think and then they had this young dude that was the same age as me Marcus Vassmeyer on the way through um, who was a, the, sort of their hot property yeah so uh, he came down and caught up with me and said you know the word had sort of spread around he said he heard what had happened and um, did I have anything organised and he said because you know, we'd love to invite you to come and train with us and, and we'll pay up with Marcus and, right. and you can do our whole program you know, right through the rest of the So they've gone the other way, okay, okay, Marcus, so you train with Marcus, you both get exactly going right. to help him. Yeah, so so that was great. So I, I went straight in the next week and, and got the rest of the pre-season with the German guys and, and that was awesome. Mm. And then sort of hit the World Cup and, uh, yeah, had a had a pretty good season. Yeah. You know? And uh, so, that yeah, so the training side was, was difficult and, you know, I, I mean, I had no money when yeah. I was over there, you know for the most part of my career. Was there any funding from here? I mean, or does it, doesn't that step in until you make, you know, until you get the Olympics? Um, the Olympic years you get a little bit, but there's, the funding was still minimal. Yeah. I mean, I, I ended up, you know, top 15 in the world and had good ski contracts and whatnot. So I was making, <coughs> you know, getting income from from the results that I was You get, because yeah, World Cup, you, it's prize money, right? There was no prize money in oh. World Cup in those days. Oh, okay. We were still amateurs, you know, so, which was a crock of shit. Because <laughs> everyone's getting paid by yeah. ski companies. So yeah, there was money flying around. So the money from ski companies and boot companies and goggles and everything else was was pretty good. And then if you're you know getting top ten results, you get you get your your incentives from um, you'd have your base base contract. And then if you're top ten, you get X amount. Top five and then podiums. Yeah, you get you get quite good money. So is this in um, when you hit the top fifteen? Is that in downhill? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. right. So, um, so that money was coming in, but then I was just that it was going straight out the 
other side just to yeah. you know, keep up and fund the, travel. fund travel and coaches and mm. all the rest of the stuff that had to be had to be paid for. So, so it's like a full time job, but yeah. you pro ski without the pro. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So as opposed to like the European teams, you know, that were compatible comparable that I was racing against, they they'd be on the same ski contracts and everything, but their money would go into their buying ten new cows or you know, yeah, right. a farm or a new you know new pension or something and mm. and their team would pay for everything so yeah right that was a poor part in my area that when i got to that level there still wasn't any you know financial support really yeah i suppose so you know when you're looking at having to have a program of a hundred thousand dollars plus per year um you know in the 80s yeah <coughs> that's a lot and of money just wasn't there the money yeah. just wasn't there so and that's just so, yeah so just but small. i you know i still managed to hang in there for 10 years and well, yeah i was going to say what your career when did you officially retire um, from World Cup in 92, so right. I did the 84, 88, 92 Olympics um, and I knew by mid-season 92 that I was, I was done. We'd had a pretty nasty car crash, a German guy lost control coming down a mountain road and head on to us um, in 1990 pre-season and I had some significant injuries that I battled through that season and but I damaged my lower back which wasn't identified at the time Yeah, right. and that just continued to deteriorate through the 91, 92 season. Yeah. Um, so I was borderline right through that season whether I'd you know make it through and I'd my yeah. back had gone I'd be on the floor for a few days crawling around. Yeah, um, right, nothing worse. Um skiing pain and um and that season then those those Olympics were were probably the most fun and successful for me because we what Was that 92? Was that 92 Albertville, yeah. Uh, Albertville, right. Yeah. Um you know got a good program together with a physio that was paid for by the Olympic guys and some sports site site because i was in a pretty dark place you know struggling mentally yeah. with the skiing and skiing side of things in pain all the time and so um yeah we got a program got me through the olympics and so yeah i announced my retirement at the olympics and yeah. finished the next few races and the sort of talented season i was probably in the best shape and form yeah post the olympics you know, everything has settled down a bit and um yeah finished my last world cup in aspen oh yeah 92 so um yeah, then I Good. sort of thought I was done. Yeah. You know, I'd been diagnosed. How old were you then? 29. Yeah, right, okay. Yeah. Um, the, my back condition wasn't great. Um, first sort of doctor that we had proper scans and having done looked at it and said, well, you know, your back's pretty much rooted. You should probably stop skiing. Oh, really? I'm like, you mean stop competing? He's on that. I'm like, stop skiing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not going to happen. Yeah. So what are we going to do about it? Um, yeah, we finally sort of identified the issue and, and got it sorted out. But I had, um, and then I went off into, but then I got my back right and I was pretty good again. Yeah. I really haven't had a back issue since. So. Yeah, right. That's, that's lucky. So yeah, pretty lucky. So I went, uh, I went on and decided to go and race on the Pro Tour, yes, Pro Tour. Oh, that's right. So I did that for about four years. Because 29, like downhill especially, it's yeah. sort of your prime early 30s, isn't it? 100%, yeah. yeah. So the... I should have, in hindsight, just gone back into World Cup. Yeah, right. I haven't sat out for a season. Um, you know, I just didn't think I'd be able to make it back in, and and still the commitment to financial commitment to do it. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd, uh, and the time commitment to do it, um, it just didn't seem realistic at the time. But it yeah. probably would have been a better decision because then the OWI started, and you know, Zali was coming through, and there was money in sport. Yeah. So if I had a, probably got through another season of World Cup, then things might have changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we might have got a really, really well-funded program and, and uh, you know, had two good 
Alpine skiers doing great things. Mm. Zali was on the way through at that stage, doing good things in the mid nineties, and you know I probably could have gone through definitely. Well, the next Olympics were only two years away because they did the switch from winter and summer. Oh, that's so right. Yeah, ninety two Olympics. Then the next Winter Olympics were ninety four. Yeah, we were there. Oh, Lilyhammer, that's right. And then 98, so realistically, I probably could have been good right through the 98 games. Yeah, yeah. And raced World Cup through to the mid-30s, which, as you said, was was sort of the change of the guard in that era, that the was unusual for, for ski racers to sort of retire around the 30s, but then, you know, conditions got better, courses mm. got better, training got better, the sport became safer. Yeah. Less wear and tear on the body um, with the modern sort of downhill and slam just track setups. They were just more consistent, less yeah, less holes, less ruts. Yeah, um, so you could race longer and and uh, yeah, body hanging longer, and you get better. You do. Yeah. You just get better. Your body gets generally stronger. You get wiser. You train better. Mm. So um, yeah, make better decisions at yeah, 120 so kilometers an hour. <laughs> exactly. <yeah. laughs> so with that, um, okay, three Olympics. What was your best Olympic result? Best individual result was 19th in my first Olympics, yep. and I matched that in the second, and they were both pretty much disasters, really. Yeah. Like, best Olympic, and it's still the best Olympic finish for a man in Australia. But you, but that was the worst result of the season, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's right. Nuts, so. And then I got 11th in the, I crashed in the downhill in Val d'Isere, um, and then had a really strong combined downhill result of 11th, and yeah. Um, yeah, so the first couple of games were, the first one in particular was, was a real eye-opener. You know, you go to the Olympics and it's, um, there's so much more going on. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah protocol imagine. and people and everything else around. And, and I was in red-hot form in those games. You know, I'd, I'd had a 6th, 7th and 10th in the three World Cups leading into it. Right. Um, you know, I was in the skiing inside a second of the fastest guys pretty much every race. Yeah. Winning training runs, got to the Olympics had you know, three top ten finishes in training in the last training round I got third. Yeah. So I was I was ready to rock, you know. Hundred yeah. percent ready to rock and and um and probably would have been fine if the race went off on time. Yeah. You know, which was supposed to be the next day and, and uh you know the media side of things was a bit of a frenzy even in that area in the eighties, yeah. you know. Um but the race got delayed by a week. Oh really? <laughs> With weather, yeah. This monster snowstorm came through and absolutely dumped on, you know, like a metre of snow through the whole yeah. the whole region. So we sat around and twiddled our thumbs for a week and and uh you know, having been third in the last training run there was a lot of attention and expectation mm. and talk and and I just you know, wasn't mentally prepared for it. Yeah. Really and, and the team wasn't I don't think mentally prepared for it either. It was the first sort of legitimate chance that an Aussie had had yeah. at a medal. So by the time the race came around, it was being drummed into me that I was just going to win. You know? Yeah, right. I didn't think I had to do anything. You know? Wow. And it's actually only race in my whole career that I have no recollection of what I did on the way down the hill. Really? So you just totally, you mentally just... Start, I was just in a fog. Yeah, yeah. complete fog, you know. Um, got to the finish and turned around and looked up and I was... Like, and I started number 13 and I was 12th or something. And yeah. Like, that can't be right. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a pretty massive disappointment, but also a massive learning, you know, mm. lesson. Um, so the next year's World Champs, the next year was when I won, won a Super G and had a bunch of top 10 finishers and was knocking on the door hard to yeah. you know, to win races and yeah. um, had a crack at the World Champs, which was the biggest event of the season and was 
you know, on a winning run in that and screwed up one turn and ended up 10th. Yeah. Um, next doesn't week, take much, does it? No, it doesn't take much. And the next World Cup, I was on a winning run and screwed up one turn, pulled off a huge recovery and ended up 12th and then and had a win in the Canadian Downhill Champs and went to Japan and got seventh in the downhill and won the Super G. And, you know, that was so, at Ferrano, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, is yeah. it true that that day when you won at Ferrano, you were free skiing in between? Someone told me you were free skiing in between runs because <laughs> the snow was so good. <laughs> Absolutely true. Because <laughs> I free skied every... Yeah. No, we'd, there's a bunch of us in the downhill side that were that love free skiing. So if there's yeah. ever powder around, you know, you'd forget about your warm up courses and just go and ride powder in the morning. Yeah. And we'd be up on the hill at dawn and get freshies. And I mean, you'd done so much training, you'd, you didn't have to train before, train gates before a race. You just wanted to be in a good frame of mind. And well, I suppose so then the race, just, up, yeah. race becomes part of a great day skiing. Absolutely, yeah. So Japan was off tap, as it is. You know, yeah. We all know because we're all living there now. So. Yeah. Well, when I was um, in Ferrano last year, two years ago, yeah. it was, I was in some cafe and they had fo- your photo there with, yeah. your, with, your, with your medal. With the medal, yeah. yeah still so it was pretty cool. So that, you know, I was in red hot form and I had a French coach at that time, um, Francois Sedan, who was like, really wanted me to go and do a proper warm up and all that. And I went, yeah, 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 yeah. And so, um, the morning of the down, I think it was the downhill Super G. Downhill was first, Super G was second, and we'd been out just blasting powder and pulling backflips and you yeah. know, like having a <laughs> Yahoo that we always did and warming up for a World Cup downhill was our style. About <laughs> ten or twelve of us had a little group that we, yeah. you know, we'd have a have a jump, build a booter, and all pull backflips off it, pre-race backflips, you know. <laughs> and the, the snow was so good in Japan, we're actually doing double backflips. On 223s. No, I was going to say on your downhill skis. <laughs> it was pretty fun. But it just got, you know, powder skiing. Shit, it gets you warmed up and loosened up and yeah, in a total good mood, you know. Well, so it's better than just sitting around waiting for you to run. Sitting around or running gates and, you know, making a couple of bad turns and getting frustrated. So. Yeah. So, yeah, so um, Francois was like, you know, I want you to do some GS warm up this morning. You're in form. You, you know, you, you can win this. And yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was walking into the restaurant just before, you know, set up about half an hour before the race. And Francois was walking out, out to get to his position. And, uh, he, you know, I sort of saw him and was smiling and he just looked at me and just nodded his head and dropped his head, you know. Yeah, I, right. And then I caught a glimpse of myself in a, in a window and I had the helmet on and I had like this snow mohawk that had formed <laughs> like over the top of the helmet. So it was clear that I hadn't been running GS. I'd yeah, right. Out in the powder. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, the the downhill I got seventh in, but it was it, it was a stellar finish for me because I started I wasn't in the first seat at that point, um, and a big snow flurry came in right as the first guy pushed out the yeah. gate. So the first, second, third starters finished first, second, and third. Yeah, and right. And the rest of us skied through about ten centimeters of fresh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I raced this race, and I don't think I, it was another powder run really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Skis from top to bottom. But got a good result, seventh. And but I was disappointed, you know, because I won. Well, the guy that won it, Todd Brooker, was my teammate at head. Oh, okay. And, and we had the f- fastest skis, and we were first and second every training run. So yeah. I was pretty convinced that that was going to be my first win. Yeah, I was right. In form and standing stuck eight, not thinking I could win, knowing I could win. You know? Yeah, right. But the weather, you know, I knew when I pushed out that I didn't have a hope. But still, you know, I had a good run and, and finished seventh, which was good. So. And Super G was a pretty new thing at that era. Um, so I remember walking through the lobby of the hotel and they had the trophies in a case there and 
you know, the down one had been given away and the Super G one was still there. So yeah. I thought, well, maybe I'll just win that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then the next day I came out and and, uh, and I made a good decision in the morning. We went up and inspected it and it was set like a mini downhill. You know, yeah, it was a right. fast Super G. And equipment hadn't been, like nowadays you've got your set Slam GS Super G. Yeah. Skis. They're all regulated fists, you know. Yeah, right. Regulated lengths and side cuts and everything. So Super G was in its, I think it was in its second year in World Cup, so you could use GS skis, down skis, whatever you wanted. Yeah. So Head had built these specific GS, uh, Super G skis, which were sort of in between, but they weren't nearly as fast as the downhill boards that were on. Yeah. Um, quite a bit shorter and a bit more side cut. But I looked at the track and I thought, I can do this on the downhill boards, you know, right. I can make these turns. So I went back down to the to the ski room to see my ski tech and said, Nights, oh, I want to race this on my downhills, you know. He's gone, Oh, it's a super G, you know, your super G skis are ready. Yeah. I've gone, No, I can like I can race this on my downhill boards. He's gone He's gone, Really? I've gone, Yeah, we, you know, he's gone, Well they're in the truck. Packed <laughs> 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 away, travel wax ready to go to the oh. next race, you know. So we've gone, Oh shit. So we've run out and there's this semi trailer being loaded up. You can imagine how many yeah. you know, how many skis like 80 ski bags being loaded yeah and uh so the four of us in there the two ski techs and todd and myself just rummaging through trying to find no way trying to ski bags pulled them out and i said mate if you can get them ready and get them to the start you know i'll, I'll oh, see on them otherwise yeah. my other ones are ready to go so yeah so uh i didn't think i was going to get him he there's no sign of heinz at the start and he turned up with about five guys to go with mine and todd's downhill boards right race waxed you know so he put a massive effort in and um, yeah, I raced on him and had a blinder and, and won it. So, won, yeah. yeah. But um, and then Todd was he was starting right at the tail end because he hadn't been into Super G and had, didn't have any points yet. And uh, he was on a blinder as well. I thought the fuck is going to beat me. <laughs> <laughs> but he crashed in three gates. Ago, oh so no way! There's a really tricky turn right at the end, and yeah. a big portion of the field went out, and he just couldn't make that turn. So yeah, right. So, yeah, he blew it. <laughs> yeah, well, that must have been an amazing. <laughs> but yeah, to finally get the breakthrough and, and have a World Cup win was was something else. You know? Yeah, it was. It wasn't a shock for anyone on the tour, and it wasn't a shock for me. It was expected that. Yeah, it would have been a shock if I hadn't won. Yeah, one you felt you were going to win one sooner. Well, you'd expect so with the top six, top ten yeah. finishes yeah. regularly. But and it was cool, you know, to get to get the breakthrough and, and get a win was was awesome. Yeah, we well, were talking before about um, things being safer now and stuff. There, like injuries, like downhills probably the gnarly sport on snow there's a classic photo of you mm. that when um in a, in a race and you, when you first look at it, it looks like you're just clearing the air but then you, then you have a look at it, your right ski has dropped off dropped off, off, yeah. off your <laughs> like, yeah. like it was a moment was yeah a moment famous moment yeah um, amazing photo yeah, whoever got amazing. it so, yeah well it was a single snap the guy that shot it mm. uh, he's a um, star photographer for the Denver Post. It was the 89 World Champs. Yep. In the... In the Where we Beaver Creek or somewhere. Beaver Creek, yeah. Yeah. I think it was in the downhill or the combined downhill. Um, it was one of the race days though. And... Um, what happened after that? Um, after that well, second. it was a lead up to it because I'd, I'd been forced to switch binding companies that year. Oh, okay. Um, by our then Austrian coach who was nice, so a bit of a shyster. But he... Um, I'd been on look bindings pretty much my whole career yeah very trusting and still on those bindings now yeah which are rosinol you know the actual yeah um but i had to change that year and i i tried a few other bindings and trolley a head trolley right that were sort of one group and they were pretty keen to get me on to yeah and i i tested and they just didn't feel right they were a completely different stance in the binding mm. and I, it just felt too different 
So I tested marker and they were very similar in stance and with the turntable heel. And I thought that, you know, yeah. been around for a long time. So I switched to marker and they just didn't work, you know. Yeah, they right. just fall out of them. Wow. And, right. and there was about three or four of us, similar guys, size-wise, style-wise, that had wrong marker, had switched to marker that year and there was just some glitch in it that, yeah. you know, you hit 120, you skied fall off. Yeah, right, which is a good so 120 kilometers per hour. You know, I didn't crash much in my career and unfortunately, because it's not much fun crashing yeah. in downhill. Um, but I'd had, so I was 89, I think I'd been in World Cup for six years and I'd had six crashes in six years, mm. you know, like a year when I had none and maybe two then, yeah. but I hadn't had many crashes, Yeah. Um, even going as hard as we did. Um, and that year I had seven crashes in three weeks. Oh wow. And I was beat up to the max, I had no skin on my elbows and ass and back yeah. just from sliding on the ice and bruised and battered. and. And um, so I sort of made a vow to myself that I wasn't going to crash again, you know, mm. even though a lot of it was out of my control because yeah. just the ski just fall off halfway through a turn, you just eat shit. Um, and I had a massive recovery in Vengen, which is an, another amazing shot of me, like just so out of control. Mm. You know, not because, I mean, it was my own doing that, but, yeah. but I recovered and finished. And then we got to the world champs and... and uh, I actually had a double ejecting inspection trying to oh, right. double, there was a, like a double jump and we, were, we, were, um, we uh, figured we could probably do it. So we'd line it up in inspection and had a crack at it and, and I was the first one to do it and knuckled it yeah. and just came out of both skis and yeah. boot skied for about 30 metres and ate shit. Oh wow. <laughs> but didn't hurt myself, luckily. It's amazing. And that was, but that was like, that was my error, I didn't, you know, I didn't clear it and yeah. you know, I hit with such a hard impact that both skis just came off. Um, then for the race stuff, we were doubling it quite easily. Yeah. Uh, and then in the in the in the race, that photo was was um, it was it was a weird one because there was like a series of three pretty decent jumps in a row in a straight line, and I'd come off the first one cleanly, come off the second one cleanly, landed, came off the third one, and without hitting anything or feeling any force through my body, my ski just left my foot. Yeah, and right. You can see in the photo, the hill yeah. is wide open. Wide open, yeah. So it clearly, the landing on the second jump, we estimate that the way I always landed pretty flat. Yeah. You know, um, some skiers sort of landed tail tip first, but I was one that just touched down pretty evenly. But the force of landing must have just snapped the binding open. Yeah. And then you're sitting in the little cradle of those, you know, with a straight glide mm. to the next jump, doing 150 you know, k's an hour. Yeah. <laughs> it just fell off my foot. Ugh. So the shot is insane because it was a single shot and the guy that took it was working his way down the track and, and pre-digital. Yeah, still I know, he had so full focus gone, and everything. He's yeah. just gone click and then watch what happened and gone, oh, that could be interesting, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we didn't know the, the shot existed till a day or two later when he went back to Denver and got it all processed. Yeah. Process, and it was on the front cover of the Denver Post yeah. that day. Um, but yeah. anyway, I skied down and, and I was in the lead when it happened as well, so uh, I was right. like rubbing salt into the wounds. Um, got to the bottom and I was looking for one of the market guys because I was going to clock him. <laughs> I was so pissed off. Broke my best set of skis. Um, you know, the ski that came off just nosedived and yep. was, yep. was demolished. Um, the first person I saw in the finish area was the head of Trollia. Yeah. And uh, Heinz Rams and he's um, said, oh, Stevie, bad luck, you know. I saw what happened. I said, do you want me on Trollia? He's gone, of course. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, well, I'm never skiing on marker again, so yeah. if you want me right now, he's gone, but your contract. And I've gone, 
I don't care. I'm never skiing on markers again. Right. He's gone, and I said, "Can you hook me up?" And it's like, no, nineteen, twenty pairs of bindings yeah. had to be switched. Mm. So he's gone. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So I've gone. He's gone. Bring your skis over. Yeah. So we got all the skis over, and they changed changed all the skis over. I think it was eighteen or nineteen pairs of skis. Ridiculous amount of skis we travelled mm. with, and. Then I just had this garbage bag full of bindings of markers, and I went. It wasn't the tech's fault. It was, you know, do everything they can to obviously make you safe. And yeah, you know, there's not a just a dud. They perfectly adjusted. Everything was just yeah. And I just opened the door, and he just looked at me. I'm sorry, you know. <laughs> yeah. And then the head marker guy saw me that night, and he's gone. Understand, you know. Yeah. Just cancel the contract, no problem. Yeah. Must have been bad for them. They must have been freaking out. Cause well, they were, especially when I got seventh in the Super G three days later, and and uh, Trolley ran and double page ad with that photo of the ski falling off and then no. me getting seven. No way. <laughs> it was a cheeky, the American guys did it, so it was. Pretty cheeky. Pretty cheeky, yeah. Pretty cheeky. It was, yeah. So, um, so during your career, you spent like a European base. Was Val is there your base? No, we were, sort of Verbier was like my, um, my spiritual base, I guess you'd yeah, call it. Yeah, because you my spent a lot of time base. there. Yeah, and a bunch of mates that lived there, you know, the Verbier connection in the 80s. Great movie if you ever get to see it. Yeah. Really cool movie. So a bunch of mates that live there that I grew up with skiing at Falls. Um, our team base was, was we were in the other end of Switzerland for a while um, when we had a Swiss, when Jan was with us and then moved to the Wiltschenau in Austria, which was sort of near Innsbruck. Yeah. So it was a team base. But any time I had time off, I'd, I'd go around to Verbier and catch up with my mates. Yeah. So Verbier is where you wanted to spend the time when you weren't training. And then springtime, I'd go to Verbier and, and hang out there and yeah. and spend about six, seven weeks. Yeah. And then which was an interesting story. The, the first time I went there in the 80s, pre-World Cup, and I'd just finished a two-year stint. When I finished high school, I, I dedicated two years to the, mm. to the sport and just went flat out and I skied. Well, the only days I wasn't on snow were basically flying from the southern hemisphere to the northern hemisphere. Yeah, right. Vice versa now. So I, I literally went two years, skied through and probably 60 days a year, trained my ass off just to see where I could get to in the sport. And came out the other end and you know, I, was, I was in a good place. I was level with all the European kids and, and ready to dedicate myself to, the, you know, to yeah. going on at 19, 18, 19. Um, and I was finishing up in Europe and... Mark and my mates were all over in Verbier, and yes, it's pre mobile phone and all that. There was a there was a phone in the pub, Montfort. Yeah, you know, in the <laughs> that was your that was your personal phone. So I'd, no, so I'd <laughs> ring that number and someone would answer, and I go, oh, "Can you put Mark or Colin on or Kent?" Um, and they'd been, you know, they ripped me a few letters and said, "You got to come to the Verbier at the end of the season." So unreal, I hadn't really skied there. I'd done a race there in the late seventies, I think. Yeah, but I hadn't really skied there. And they said, no, so they were at me to come over, and I was just so over. I thought I was over skiing. I'd you know, done yeah. this massive stint, two years of training and skiing, and yeah. feeling a bit fried and just wanted to go to the beach, you know? Yeah. So um, I was in Zurich, ready to go home. I think six days before my flight went, and I was in Zurich. So I rang the boys and I said, Well, I'm at the airport, I'm going to try and change my ticket and fly home tomorrow. Yeah. If, I, if I can't change it, then I'll come, come over up. for a few days. And So I couldn't change my ticket and drove over to Verbier and got there on a nice sunny Arvo. And hooked up with the boys and a few other of their mates, Scottish guy, Mad Colin, that we all became great mates with, a few Swedish boys, and had a good night and evening out, you know. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, yeah. Pub <laughs> Mont 4 was on fire. <laughs> 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 and 
And then uh, I can imagine. Yeah, it was like walking into a Miss Welcome. Chantez, it was crazy back in that era. <laughs> Male and female, good-looking humans. You know, yeah, great place to hang out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, season was finished. It was party time. Next morning, we wake up, dust ourselves off, go out for a ski. Didn't look like well, it had snowed for a few weeks, so we're bombing around the resort, and it was you know kind of like was here so thread, but it was yeah. just hard pisted you yeah. know and then uh, about one o'clock in the hour the boys go oh you know maybe we should go ski some powder I'm like kidding me aren't you it doesn't look like a snow for a few weeks oh it hasn't but there's still a few stashes left around you know yeah. so we do this traverse around the back of the mountain and we're looking down this hill and it's just untracked yeah and beautiful and a few of the boys take off and it's just blowing smoke behind them and then I take off and we all ski to the bottom and I get around I'm just looking at the tracks back up and looking at the boys and going, Fuck, you boys are sport rotten. This yeah. is amazing. Yeah. So anyway, I ended up leaving seven weeks later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you didn't go surfing and, for a while. Uh, didn't go surfing, but I quickly found out that I was not burnt out with skiing. Skiing itself, I was burnt out with training yeah. and racing and the, you know, the, the day-to-day grind of, of that and just found a real passion again for yeah. just the fun of the sport. Yeah. So I made that a regular thing i did that every spring yeah um, spring and when verb, I yeah. World Cup the next year and was getting good equipment in that most of my mates were in the same size boots and those that weren't made sure they're in the same size boots so i'd turn up with a car full of kit yeah to test you know yeah. for the next season so i'd have 10 or 15 sets of skis i oh, saw so all the boys would be going out and so yeah so i'd have all the boots set up and we'd all on the side we'd take out this range of skis and i could rotate through with all my mates and just you know, yeah just skied like maniacs for three or four weeks but I got a lot of mm. good testing work done had yeah. a lot of fun you know party mass off we'd still go and train and have a good sports centre there and yeah, well you did have a reputation for party Steve yeah and it was kind of the area you know oh yeah um, yeah to embrace it yeah <laughs> totally yeah it was part of the part of the gig yeah. but, um, <laughs> well like you said the season was finished so yeah, yeah. yeah. and I would partied when yeah. it was right to party and and work mass off when when I had to and yeah you know I thought I struck a pretty good balance yeah I think on time think you did I think you definitely Cause did because I yeah you know, I worked hard physically like we yeah. train like maniacs mm. and uh, yeah well Cole the Scottish guy and the mad Scottish guy ended up employing him because he was like the gnarliest fittest man I'd ever right train with so I employed him as my training partner yeah did you do some movie stunt stuff over yeah. there yeah. Did you yeah, do a Bond did, one? Or? We didn't do a Bond one. We did a Bond spin-off, which was Willy Bogner's Fire, Ice and Dynamite. Oh, that's right, yeah. Which had Roger Moore in it and a few other key actors, but it was just this full spoof, yeah. crazy, crazy movie. I mean, like, the stuff we did on that was insane. I can imagine. It was, imagine. Fun. It was yeah. fun, yeah. Yeah. And then I did another one with Jackie Chan in, in Falls. Yeah, um, that's right. It was one of their key stunt guys doing snowmobile and ski work. And yeah, when was that? In the 90s? Mid-90s, yeah. 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 So, so post-career, like when you just, okay, you retired and you finished and go, what do you think, okay, now what do I do? We're obviously going to be skiing, right? In, yeah. In Falls well, Creek. I, I ski raced through till I was 39. Yeah. So was the pro, what was the pro tour like in the States was, then? It was good. Yeah. yeah. So you did 10 years of that. Well, I did about four years on the US Pro Tour, and that, that sort of was dying leading into Salt Lake City. Right. All, the, all the sponsorship money was aimed at the games, and they just couldn't get the money for it. So that, that tour was dying. So I did that for years, and I retired, and I thought mid-30s, that's me done completely. Um, had a summer off and stayed in Australia, which yeah. was um, kind of good, but drove everyone crazy, I think. Drove everyone so else crazy. On the heat, and I was just oh, yeah. cut out for summer. No. <laughs> Then I got invited the next year to another Pro Daniel tour, which was the King of the Mountain. I did a couple oh, of years on that. Was, yeah. And that was awesome. So that was, and that sort of 
Was there decent money on those? It things? was good money. Yeah, yeah, it was good money, and it was fully funded. You know, yeah, they, they had twenty-two skiers on it, all invited. You all had to have won a World Cup, World Championship medal, Olympic medal, yeah, to, to be invited onto the tour, and um, and you raced individually and as a team. So was I, that the I, US? Or it was all in the US. Yeah, all in the US. Yeah. Right, um, and they had, you know, they had the best skiers just out of just out of competition. It was a great tour. They had Franz Heinzer, they had Franz Klammer, they had Billy Dee Johnson, Doug Lewis, yeah. um, you know, Felix Belichick, um, Rob Boyd, Stemmel. was a good rotation. You know, so they had German team, Italian team, Austrian team, Swiss team, American, Canadian, and myself and Martin Bell combined as the Commonwealth. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah, we won it the first year. Yeah, so I remember was, that. Yeah, so it was interesting because for the and and it was interesting for the European guys that had been in these you know full professional teams, mm. national teams for years with everything they ever needed, and then they're on this pro tour where they're basically tuning their own skis and yeah, you know, training without assistance. You know, we'd have training like these training camps pre the event that they put on, and we'd all come in and train, but they didn't have coaches. They didn't. They, then they sort of most of the guys came to me and said, wow, yeah, that's how you were your whole career. Yeah, well, that's so why they've gone from just had being in the, yeah. in the Rolls-Royce to chucking yeah. the mini So for Martin and I, which were in these little teams and knew how to look after ourselves, yeah. by ourselves, um, you know, we sort of, it was just another race, but these guys were like ducks out of water for a little while, you know? Yeah. They, on the racetracks, they were still fast, but everything around it, they were like, you know, coordinating this and that and, yeah. and you know, finding their own way. So it was, it leveled the playing field yeah. in, a, in a big sense, so. Yeah, so we sort of went from strength to strength through that, and in the final race, um, Heinzer won it, and I got second, and um, was enough points to put Martin I as the yeah overall winners. Which was yeah, pretty cool. So, so it was fun. Yeah, I had a couple of years on that tour, and then um, the last few years of racing, I did the that crazy uh, endurance oh, stuff, top which, was the, which was the twenty-four, 24 hours Aspen, yeah, and with Sean Turney did that, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, but I'd made a deal with myself when I was about 36, 37 that, um, that I wouldn't race into my 40s. Right. Quit, quit before I turned 40. And I had a few friends that, in, you know, that race in their 40s and pileaxed themselves like, yeah. you know, one of them's dead now. Billy right. Johnson is a classic example, tried to make a comeback in his 40s and, yeah. and had a pretty bad crash and a brain injury and never recovered. And um, mm. so I just sort of thought, you know, yeah. Just draw a line in the sand, and, and I was still doing that stuff and competitive, and I was sort of asked to do a few other things. And so at 39, I you know, finished, did my last race and, and went cold turkey. Yeah, on straight the off. Side and it was the best decision I ever made. You know? Yeah, so I was still healthy. I hadn't had a major injury. You know, I never blew an knee out, and and uh, yeah, that's the, good. The odds aren't in your favour. No, <laughs> no, no. Yeah, yeah. You haven't had a knee injury, which is at your level yeah, for yeah. 30, 40 so, years. Um, yeah, so these days, and I sort of worked in the media stuff for a while. And yeah, so you did all the Olympics up until the last one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was fun, and then we had a, you know, we had a show when when Pay TV came in. We had a show called the White Circus where we did for for um, one of the Foxtel channels. Yeah, uh, that did all the World Cup alpine freestyle yeah. snowboard so i hosted and commentated that um for like three years and, and then sort of drifted away a little bit from most things in the sport and i worked for a tech company in melbourne when Lala was in high school in melbourne right and i was sitting in the office there one day and it just sort of dawned on me what the fuck am i doing in yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly and uh 
and things were sort of going a bit south. Was that good? Yeah. Yeah, well, that was where we were doing the web streaming for Recurl and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, I remember all that. It was that, interesting, yeah. you know, fun times. and. Really That's right, you did work on the Down at Bells, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it was a cool company. It was a, the company had an amazing bit of technology that um, mm. they should have ended up being YouTube. Yeah. But they just couldn't see the woods for the trees, you know. So you... So I left those guys and went back to Falls and, and sort of stumbled into the guiding side of things, you know. Yeah. Cat skiing at Falls and, and then went down that path, which and has been great. Now you've got know. the backcountry tours going. Yeah, so the yeah. backcountry tours at Falls have been going for 10 years now. Wow. Uh, maybe 11. Um, Snowbill assisted backcountry and and that's awesome. You know, I basically got my own, res- own ski resort. Yeah, I know. Like um, I went out with you last year. It's a big area. Yeah, it's a big area and lots of different aspects and variety of terrain. Is it within the resort, like, it is, Headless, yeah. So the areas have we market. operate in are within the Falls Creek boundary. So right. Falls Creek Seedless, the, the ski area boundary is about 450 hectares. Right, so you're within that, so you're not out in the No, park. then there's another. So Falls Creek Resort right. boundary is over 1,000 hectares of Alpine terrain. Right. Huge chunk of land. So the ski area, lifted area is about 450, then we've got about 450 yeah. where we operate and snowbill tours go through there and there's a bit of cross-country trails go through there. And there's about 80 hectares on the face that runs back down to Hellman's. It's basically all just thick yeah. bush, which they're developing some mountain bike trails through. Yeah, right. Um, so, yeah, so it's a good chunk of land. It's been, it was started, the cat skiing started through the lift company and they asked me to do some guiding with that. Mm. And then that sort of died in the arse. The cat never ran. Yeah. And, you know, it was expensive to operate. And these big new snowmobiles were coming out, so I, I just pitched at a lift co that I thought we could do it. Yeah, better, do it that way. Know, with snowbills as a much better, you know, cheaper, fast operation and built the sleds and got it started, ran it for the lift co the first year and um, then uh, I was sort of pushing them to progress it. We needed to dedicate a snowbill, wanted to build a second sled and, and the lift manager at the time um, said it was a bit of a pain in the ass for him and he said, why don't you just take it? Yeah, you know, so we shook hands and, and basically was gifted to me, which was great. Yeah, <laughs> and then I bought the sleds and built it up and you got the good business well, going. Yeah, got the good business going. And then in the northern hemisphere, I bought a little lodge in Huckabra six years ago. Yeah, and I uh, got a great little setup over there. It's a small What's that called? Backcountry um, Huckabra powder, powder tours. tours. Yeah, yeah. Um, so accommodation and guiding over there as well. Yeah. So yeah, I've got a good good split. Yeah. Of, um, yeah, I love and obviously. Loved Japan from the first time I went there. Yeah, exactly. From memories. And pulling double backflips into power. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then uh, now down in Huckabar. Yeah. And so how long are you there for? Five months a year or something? Yeah. Uh, our commercial season there is from like Christmas through to Easter. Yeah, right. And I'll go do some setup on the lodge. And now it's pretty well done. I, I did three or four years of hard work yeah. between seasons, getting it renovated and, and comfortable and up to speed. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a beautiful old lodge, but didn't have any insulation, didn't have any heating, didn't have any... Yeah, right, and you got a straight no guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you'd wake up in the morning, there'd be a snowdrift across the hallway. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's not quite what you want. Not quite what you want, so, <laughs> but now it's super comfortable. Yeah. I've um, done some great works on it, and so that's pretty much all done, so yeah. I get a bit of time between seasons now to um, pursue my other passion of surfing, and yeah, and uh, then I settle into Huckabas sort of mid-December and work through till mid-April. Yeah. And then go and do some surfing, and then come back to Oz when the snow hits, and... There you go. Yeah. So you mentioned Layla, your daughter before, and she was born, you got married, and how, how, when was she born? Early 90s or something? 93, Layla was no, born. So after yeah, you so retired right from World Cup. Rec- and that was one of the impetuses of me pulling the pin on World Cup yeah. and, and you know, settling into family life. So yeah. Tot and I had been together for a couple of years and decided to get married uh, the year after I retired. Yeah. 
and then uh, yeah, Layla, Layla came along the next year. So, so we settled into family life, and um, that lasted a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, no, we separated when Layla was about seven, and yeah, and, um, yeah Layla's a little little mountain girl, so she, she gravitated more towards me and spent the winters at Falls, and yeah, was a pretty tidy little ski racer in her younger days, and didn't pursue that path from about sixteen on, but um, you know, good free ski, and then she's been a really strong part of the. My yep. business started off doing some stuff with me at Falls with the backcountry tours, but it was um, sort of hit and miss, you know, yeah. work-wise. So she got stuck into the retail side, and she's now a retail supervisor for Liftco at Falls, yep. um, fully entrenched in that side of things, and, and spends has enjoyed that, and then helped me run the business in Japan, Japan. in the northern winter, which has been great. Yeah, it must be cool working with your daughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Oh, she's a good, she's a good girl. So how old is she now? Twenty seven. Twenty six. Wow. Yeah, I remember me. I remember mean, <laughs> staying at your place in Falls once. She was so little. Todd had gone out. I don't know. And she just lost it. Yeah. And you were going to me. Can you do anything? <laughs> no, what are you talking about? I'm some single bloke from Threadmate, mate. Don't look at me. It was early training for you. Early training. Early training. Yeah. Training. Well, it paid off. <laughs> well, the best. The best thing with Lala, I just stick her in a backpack and we go skiing. Oh, that's what I remember. We were going up international. And we're skiing down whatever that run is, just down to the, the village bowl there. Yeah. And some woman came up and harassed you for skiing with her in the backpack. Yeah. She said, you could be out of control. And you're going, oh, it's okay, I'll know what I'm doing. Well, what if you fall over? She got really angry. I'll never yeah. forget that. Yeah. It was, you get um, it with that, but it was sort of kosher back in those days. Yeah. Well, you know, like um, cruising down. But she, she was funny. She'd be cruising along, singing in the back, hanging out. You know, she loved it. Yeah, yeah. Or asleep. Oh, so that's pretty cool. And now she's with that. So, yeah, talk about her, um, which leads me to another theme. You mentioned before about, you know, inter-schools and Alpine and all that. Yeah. So I know Layla was, when she was racing, you got back involved in Falls Creek. Yeah. Because you, did, you, yeah, you, you well, didn't like the direction Alpine was going in Australia with training. Well, it's, it's always, it's always going to be a struggle. Alpine, you know, it's a, it's a big global sport, Northern Hemisphere sport, massive numbers that do it, super competitive. You know, like the men's list is 16,000. Yeah. So when you jump into the fist level, you know, you start off with 999 points and you rank 16,000th in the world. Yeah, it's a bit hard, it's a hard there's, start. There's a, yeah, there's a big mountain to climb, you know, to get up through the ranks. But, um, you know, and I get asked a lot, why did I make it? I don't know, you know, I was talented, I worked hard, I had good coaching, I had good early identification, I mm. skied a shitload, you know. I yeah. think probably skiing a shitload was the biggest what free skiing, not yeah. just not just training well, gates. Of, and we trained, we did our training blocks, but I free skied way more than I ever trained. Yeah, and you know I skied with the Saint Marys kids here yesterday, and and I think probably our biggest issue is that there's too much focus on training, you know, yeah, on, on programs, and our kids have got to be doing this and got to be doing that. Then the inner school machine that's out of control in this country, you know. Um, the impetus and focus put on that it's like that's the end game you know? yeah like my kid wins the inner school and there's fuck knows how many national champions there are in this country you know my child won the nationals yeah when yeah when they're just a B grade competition and it's a, it's a not even a B grade it is entry level yeah you know I mean if they want to have the inner schools as a proper comp then you know put it on proper hills and have fist level racing you know yeah and that'd weed out. But it's an entry level comp and it's great for the sport. It brings numbers. It's good in. for participation. It's got its place. It's got its place. But it is the lowest level of, of competition sport there is. Yeah. You know, and it should be seen that way. It should be fun for the kids. Um, you know, that I think they brought in some rules where, you know, no no speed suits, no, you know, one set of skis for the kids. Yeah. And 
you know, it should be entry level, seen as a fun thing, yep. a great feeder for other programs, and it should be a supporter financially of all the disciplines. Yeah. And, and probably more so Alpine because that's the biggest sector of it. Um, yeah, and then the children's racing side of things, I think that's in pretty good shape. Yeah. You know, they've sort of regulated that pretty well now um, to keep that as a level playing field. And, um, but I was talking to, you know, Stewie Diver last night. We had a good catch up with him. Um, have a couple of beers and, and just, yeah, the topic comes up. But I think our industry is strong in Australia, you know. The, the, yeah. the ski industry, is, snow industry is smashing it. Yep. the ballpark at the moment it has been doing for a long time and it doesn't there's a lot of people on the hill every day a lot of people yeah. on the hill it's strong it's successful there's m- good money there's money being poured into resorts you know he's talking about the development that's going to happen here in the next couple of years awesome um but i think if we want to be successful in alpine um and this can be the same for all the disciplines but specifically specifically for alpine is that we need to have a a sinking fund that the industry puts money into and have some good people that are going around telling or doing yes well and from sort of 14 15 years on they go into a program that has no no need for financial input from the families because well, that cuts um, a lot of talent out. Like you're talking about St. Mary's kids, all the local kids from Cooma. Like, because it is expensive, and and you have the amount of money that's wasted in this country. You know, families putting money into their kids that you're not going to say they've got no hope. They they hope they're going to make it. And I hope they're going to make it. But the reality is that they're just throwing money away. Yeah. You know, it's much better to have that money pooled and have good programs. And we've got good people in this country. And I've seen the success, the success of, of countries like Norway is a classic example. In the 80s, the Norwegian team was, was us, they were training with us. Yeah, right. They were not like vice versa. So yeah. they, were, they had a couple of guys, they'd come out here, they'd sleep on couches, they'd, they had a very small Alpine program going. Then they got the Olympics granted for 94, so from probably mid-90s onwards, they got their act together, they poured money into programs, they, they had about half a dozen really strong young kids yeah and uh you know they got proper programs put together best training practices and those four or five boys just all went on to win medals world cup titles let's think it's only going to be a handful it's only going to be a handful and then from that they've yeah. just kept it going and yeah. Norway doesn't have a big ski numbers you know, no. they're a winter country but Alpine wise is not their main sport they've always been strong in cross country and um, yeah. skating and, but Alpine was sort of a recreational pastime you know? yeah. but now they're a dominant force and there's always only a small amount of them in there so that's a classic example of you know, a country getting their act together and, yeah. and believing in a bunch of skiers um, putting world-class practices programs together talent id you know and just working with working with a group from a young age yeah and we have plenty of skiers here you know plenty of skiers here yeah. plenty of good athletes um you know i mean a friend of toddy's was up last week and and her, her daughter's skis a little bit and she showed me a video i'm going wow she can you know she's yeah. never been in a program in life right but that's the classic example you could say well, there's a little kid that can ride a ski you know yeah naturally ride a ski yeah so if we had talent ID programs floating around where you could just spot someone, they might be someone from Perth that the family has skied yeah. a week a year. And but just some kid who knows how yeah, to stand on skis. Go, 
they're kids can ski. You could go and have a chat to the parents, say, hey, we'd like to you know, put yeah. them into a couple of weeks program and see where they go. And I think that's got to be the future of our sport. Just yeah. take the, the money game out of it and well, purely talent. Go well, you know the, talent. Yeah, the cost of uh, doing a seasonal program mm. in a, any of the race clubs yeah. is like, it's heaps. Like, yeah. you know, and then the international side, you times that by five, you know. So, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, if you... Yeah, I know. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's the same in most sports, really. Yeah, well, that's you know, a swimmer or, you know, probably surfer or... Yeah. You know, you've got, to have, you've got to have money to back you to get to a certain level. But I think in our industry, we've got to take the bull by the horns and, and create our own destiny. Yeah. And, and have a fully funded program. And it'll support the industry because if we have in a, an international team that's kicking ass, you know, the freestyle crew are doing great, the yeah. snowboard crew are doing great, but they're tiny sports yeah. compared to Alpine. Yeah. Um, if we can crack it in Alpine, which we can because we've done it, I've done it, Zali did it, Malcolm did it in the, in the 60s. Yeah, it's you know, been done, it's, it's just it's hasn't, doable. like, you know, I it's suppose doable. last time it was so good, solid, you know, there's top 30 results would have been Bud. Well, he's the last time to make World Cup points. Yeah, Bud, Bud is the last Craig Branch. Of, yeah, and, um, yeah, and they had zero program as well. Those boys were left in the wilderness for a long time. Um, and I fought for them when I, when I sat on the OWI board for five or six years, I fought to have a program, not just for them, but because they were sort of, the, the OWI and SSA are very good at, um, at um, getting programs happening in the, and they admit it, and they're the softer sports, you know? Yeah. That they identify and they go, we can put a pro world-class program with this for X amount of dollars. Yeah, for aerials and... And it's worked, you know? Yeah. We've done it in aerials, we've done it in border cross, yeah. moguls, because um, they're sports that you can, uh, yeah, there's still money needed, mm. yeah, but nothing along the lines of what it takes for whatever reasons that Alpine is. Yeah, um, but the industry's strong enough, rich enough to to fund itself, and I think that's the way it's got to go. Mm, be interesting to see yeah. what that's got to be driven by someone, I suppose, too. Yeah. Which I suppose falls back to SSA to try and drive it. Yeah, and yeah, you know, I don't know. They're a bit in the wilderness. Yeah, I think, but you know, they had a great opportunity with Mick Branch, who came in and developed pathways, and you know. He yeah. was banging his head against a brick wall. So there wasn't a... There just doesn't seem... You know, it's a courageous step to to make a game-changing move. Yeah. And, you know, you're putting your head on the... Whoever's the powers that be at the time will put their head on the chopping block, you know, to, yeah. to make it happen. But if you don't have the crack at it, then... Yeah, well, you had someone like... Gonna happen, so. Yeah, well, someone like Mick who came in and had been coaching the US speed team and yeah. stuff. So he had credentials, but... Great credentials. They didn't like what he was doing. Is that yeah. what happened? Well... Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> in a nutshell. Yeah, because yeah. he's calling them out on issues and and you know like the the town ID and the and the basics of skiing in this country, and the and it comes back to the programs like the parents are driving. Yeah, you know, our kids have to be doing gates. They should be doing gates. And you, you learn to be a shit skier doing gates. Yeah. You really do. Yeah. You learn bad habits. Yeah. Really bad habits that you cannot get out of down the track. You yeah. learn good habits through free skiing and 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 technical programs and you know they brought in this this skills test yeah which is it's an objective skills test yeah you know, that if a kid can do this that it's like one-legged skiing x you know all these different maneuvers yeah and they score you know and it's an objective score mm. and most of the kids are shit out at it yeah you know so if they can't score a certain amount on that they are never going to make it yeah you know yeah so they're the skills that need to be 
worked on at a young age mm. um, and they're just basics you know yeah and then you look at the kids skiing if you know they're not on a groomer with perfect snow they get off into something rough they're all over the joint yeah yeah you see that whereas that's where you should be skiing most of the time you see that here a lot like over the last few years which was it never used to be like that so mm. You know, I remember when John O'Brien and those kids, Sean Turner and stuff, the three-bow race, you'd mm. see them all over the hill. Just like, launching it. Yeah, and they yeah. hit that bluff corners in their little yeah. red jackets. There'd be 50 of them. Yeah. And then now, you re- I really notice it, you know, like you're going up, say, one of those powder days when it's windhold, and you'll see a TSRC crew coming down in the powder under Snowgum Share, and they can't ski, mm. which I thought was yeah. pretty weird. But, they are, and, but they're young, too. Like, it's like they're, they're young. They're Maybe they're too young to go in there, you know? Yeah, but too young to launch no, it. Yeah. No, no, but too young. No, not that too young to be training gates every day when you're eight, oh, nine absolutely. years old. Yeah. You know? No, it's a farce. Yeah. You, know? you do not learn to ski training gates. You learn bad habits and you'll be a shit skier for the rest of your life. Yeah, yeah. well, that's not going to get anyone into school points, so it's there. I think that's, I think that's what's happened, you know. Look down on the inner schools and let your kids have a good time, you know. Well, that's give another them, thing. Give them good directional training, good free skiing, you know. Yeah. And then let them wild with their buddies, you know. Just go out and play, because that's where you implement everything you learn. Yeah. Just playing. And that's what it's all about, I suppose, yeah. you know. That's what you want to do. And it's a sport that you can do that. Yeah. You know, fuck, I'm 57, I'm still playing. Yeah. You know? I had a great day, say, with the kids, and, you know, I've still got a passion for the sport, um, which you I ski, You'll ski out. every day, you can, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I might be a bit of a freak, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can agree with that, you know. <laughs> Which I love it. You know, it's, it's fun. It's just fun. Yeah. Well, it wasn't. And there's not many sports in the world that are fun that you can do with your kids. Right. You know, I was oh, with my sure. mum last week. She's yeah. 80, 80, 85 and new hip and got her out for a first day on snow. It's I awesome. had shares. She loving it. Loves it. She's yeah. Like she's shitting herself like in the morning. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, Noel's I'm shitting myself. <laughs> <laughs> but then she gets out and skis beautifully. It was. It's just a joy to watch. You know. Yeah, yeah. So skiing with that, and you, you know, you probably. Yeah. Yeah, skiing with the grandkids one day, maybe. Yeah, for <laughs> no. sure. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she, so like, you know, there was three generations there, so. Yeah, um, you see it here, you know. Yeah. I've seen, you know, Tommy Tomasi still skiing. He's Fantastic, well in his man. 90s, yeah. you know. Fantastic. So it's a sport where you can, you know, it's a lifelong joy and passion, and you can do it with your kids, your grandkids, your parents, yeah. your grandparents. It's, yeah, it's amazing. There's not too many things in this world that you can yeah. do out and enjoy. And I think that's the big allure, allure yeah. to it, you know, the, the family you see all these little kids out there and, and talking to the, some of the St. Moritz crew. You know, one of the dads he didn't start skiing until he was well into his 40s. He's a farm from Cooma and right. you know, his folks had the business, they ran all the groceries and stuff up here and his dad said the last thing he wanted to do was drive back on the weekend with his kids so they just never skied. Right. And his kids, through St. Moritz Club, uh, started the bus program and coming up and he thought, well, then the bus stopped one year because they didn't have enough numbers. So he started driving up and going, well, I'm up here, amazing. Might as well ski. So at early 40s... He learned to ski. He learned to ski, and he says, I'm a tragic now. I go into Europe, I'm like, I love it. <laughs> well, it's unreal. I mean, I've got to admit, I'm the same. I was like late 20s when I yeah. first... My first experience of snow was at Falls Creek on a winter stick wearing gym boots, yeah, Converse, because yeah, we didn't have any boots, <laughs> yeah. and we didn't have enough money for lift tickets. So we we'll jumping around. off the... No, we walked up past a car park and just found this open glade in the bush, and we yeah. just rode down into that, and... That was that, and you know, I'd surfed all my life, and now, yeah, it's funny. I prefer probably because I don't surf as much as I wanted to, but I, you yeah, know, I'll ski, ski. It's I remember Bart Lynch telling me it was, when he started snowboarding, it was unreal because he was learning something new. So, you know, mm. world champion surfer, mm. and then he just had that oh, he's captain enthusiasm, but just totally. that joy of being a grommet yeah. and learning again. again yeah. So, you can't, you know, that's what you can do with skiing, yeah, and you, you can learn it at a later age. Yeah. Um, 
Or you can get back into it a later. You know? Well, that's a lot right. Of people do it and for whatever reason drift away from it and then either come back with their kids and get enthusiastic about it again or just come back later on. It's yeah. yeah, well, you do. You come across people like that, like our shop here. Someone will come in, yeah, I haven't skied for 10 years. Came back last year and now I'm back. I've bought new boots, bought yeah. new skis. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I, mean, I suppose that's what, you know, when we, um, when we say in Chill Factor, we're, you know, live, love, Australian skiing. I mean, that's mm. what it's all about, you know, the strength And you know it. what? Australian skiing is awesome. And, uh, uh, you know, so many crews like, oh, how can you ski in Australia? Yeah, that... Overseas? And I'm like, well, <laughs> hey, if you don't want to ski, then fuck off, you know? It's like, bizarre. <laughs> I find that attitude so... Sh it's just stupid, right? Yeah, like, they should be banned. Be a lifetime <laughs> That's or, right. You know? But it is worth that. Well, you don't like skiing in Australia, so you know. Yeah, but like you said, there's <laughs> red card. <laughs> you know, perfect groomers up there this morning. It's going to be fun. A little bit hard pack. It's going to be fun though, you know. Yeah, yeah. But then, like and two weeks ago, I had some of the best powder I've ever uh, had. Yeah, and there's this thought, there's this mystical storm that's brewing that we might be powder through the second half of September again. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Well, but, um, Grasshopper's you know, calling snow next weekend. Yeah, mate. Look so, out. Yeah, you know, the quality of skiing in Australia is great for for. The climate we have here, I think the resorts smash it out of the ballpark, and that's evidence in the fact that the the industry is doing really well. Yeah, you know, snow making technology is getting better. Yeah, again, talking with Stu last night, climate change, whatever. There'll be technological answers to yeah to, to for us to be skiing. You know, yeah, we just don't no need problems. all that warm stuff coming through. Yeah, but I mean, I suppose like I was at Perish yesterday, you know, biggest resort, and um, it was packed. You know. Then bat, everyone's spread out, and mm. then you see there's just people everywhere, all ages, all demographics, you know, skiing, snowboarding, smiling, smiling having a good yeah. time. And there's really good snow from, you know, wide of air all the way around the Guthaga. Yeah. You know, you just got, yeah. and like you think, well, I just skied some chalky hard pack, I skied some spring snow in Sun Valley, had yeah. some awesome corduroy, and, but yeah, I'm not skiing Australia, I only skiing Japan. <laughs> when someone comes into our shop and says, a man has got this real, Oh yeah, well this work in Japan, I don't normally ski in Australia. You go, oh cool, kook, I'll be able to, <laughs> I'll be able yeah. to sell them something. Yeah. But it's like a surfer <laughs> saying, I only surf in Indo. I'm not yeah. gonna, like, you know, you're not, you don't get too many perfect days of waves on yeah. the east, you know, in, especially in Sydney exactly or, you know, right, yeah. Wollongong, Newcastle. And, you know, at the start of the interview with Chasha, when I first started going overseas, I grew <laughs> up at Falls and I just thought every resort in the world was skiing, ski out, yeah. you know. Went to Aspen and we had to get on a bus and then we hoofed this patch of snow for months on end <laughs> and then you know got some okay skiing right at the end and then went to Europe oh Europe's gonna be awesome skied on rocks and dirt and shit snow and then you know Europe had a couple of good seasons in a row when I started World Cup Europe had three great seasons yeah and it was epic I yeah. mean, Europe with snow is epic that's the pinnacle is there it? Are shit you know yeah like shit seasons um, you know Japan's probably the most reliable place in the world I think, yeah that I've, that I've seen you know quality and quantity of snow but it's funny over there, you know, like Huckaba three years ago had their worst snow season, yeah. snowfall season. The quality was still good, but we didn't get any December snow and probably only ended up with seven metre base. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead yeah. of a 12 metre base. Yeah. And I was like, oh, it's a shit season, you know, and I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Have well, I've been skiing, like the skiing is epic. Yeah. But it's still, you know. Do you think it's a shit season? Yeah. Well, because it's not powder every a foot of powder every day. It just becomes a theme you know yeah so it's it's a weird people just want to ski powder yeah. i only ski powder's powder. awesome yeah it's a, incredible but, it's amazing but you, know. you can't have fun like jerry jones has this great quote i saw in this video of him the other day you know, and he was just riding the groomers at squall yeah. spring just beautiful carb turns yeah know? and he goes you know like 
I, days like this, I go up and I ride every lift, calls it around the world, just rides every groomer, you know. And he goes, you know, people say, oh, yeah. He says, if anyone can only enjoy skiing and snowboarding in powder, well, they're in the wrong sport because yeah. they're going to be miserable. Yeah, which is I enjoy totally it for true. Years, you know? Yeah. And it's the equipment, all there's all the different equipment these days. You can rip a, you know, yeah. pull a set of skis or board out and rip down a hard pack and slush. And then, you know, the equipment's so versatile these days. Yeah, no, it's unreal. You have fun in whatever's out there. No, it's and, really um, good. Yeah, no, that's, that's, the, that's the sport we're in. And don't claim it's a shit season if there's snow on the ground. You know, it's only a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, it's always good when it's there's snow on the ground. Sliding down a hill. Yeah, got a smile on your face. It's got to be good. Yeah. All right. That's good. Pleasure talking to you, Rich. Good to catch up, Steve. Yeah, thanks so for uh, all your insight. And um, thanks for joining us here on Chill Factor. Good to see it thriving. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, you started it. Yeah, that's no, awesome. Proud <laughs> of you guys. All right, Great. cool. Thank you. Remember, for details on donation for Steve's Fight Back Fund and to follow his progress through rehab, check out the Steve Lee Support Tribe page on Facebook. Well, that wraps up another Chill Factor podcast. If you enjoyed it, please rate, review and share it with friends. We'll drop the next episode in a couple of weeks. Until then, I hope you get out and live and love Australian skiing. Find us at chillfactor.com.